Good morning. Wow, what a beautiful turnout. I know you're here to hear a wonderful uh, uh, presentation from Dr. Jane and myself. And you're not really hungry and eating, are you? I'm only kidding. So it's wonderful to be with you. My name is Brendan Montano. I'm an internal medicine doctor who also does neuroscience clinical research. And Dr. Jane, my goodness, uh, needs no introduction. He is a, a phenomenal uh, physician first and, uh, and teacher, teacher second. I've learned a lot from Dr. Jane, and I still do. So we're, today we're going to be talking about ADHD, and we're going to be looking at several aspects, including combining a live patient perspective. We have a, a lovely woman who has been diagnosed and treated after going through a difficult period of time without the diagnosis. So uh, you're going to meet Tabitha, and, and uh, uh, you're going to also look at her journey through the primary care setting and finally getting a diagnosis, okay? We're going to be then talking about best strategies for improved identification and treatment. And it's crucial that we keep this diagnosis high on our index of suspicion. I'll talk a little bit about, about that. So once again, Dr. Chain, as you know, needs no introduction, but his uh, clinical uh, department of psychiatry, professor of psychiatry at Texas Tech Health Center in School of Medicine, and a wonderful teacher. I am um, going to move through the disclosures quickly. There's really... Uh, uh, it's a good CME opportunity, and I don't think we're going to be talking very much off-label. If we do, we'll let you know. Um, the learning objectives are to recognize the barriers of identification and to look at the diagnosis of ADHD primarily in adults. And then Dr. Jane will describe the pharmacological properties of all the short and long-acting stimulants that are approved for treatment of ADHD, including their mechanisms of action, safety, efficacy data, onset and duration, and treatment response, and how to monitor patients through that part of their treatment, making sure that you optimize their treatment. Incorporating a patient-appropriate stimulant pharmacotherapy is really the, the mainstay of our uh, treatment. It doesn't mean we don't look globally, and I know Dr. Jane looks globally as I do, at treating with exercise, very important, good nutrition, sunshine, all the good stuff, okay? So we're going to be looking at, at global treatment, but focusing primarily on pharmacotherapy. And then we're going to take and have a nice discussion with our patient. That's where it really is at. Tabitha is going to teach us. We're going to be able to see what it was like from her perspective to navigate through the world of medicine and primary care in, in particular. And finally, to arrive at a diagnosis and get treatment. Okay? So let's launch into, and by the way, I do clinical research on one side of the office, clinical medicine on the other. So I'm facing this every day as most of you are. If you, if you look at the data in our communities, in, in, in the United States, national uh, uh, surveys, replication, Kessler, etc., 8% of children have ADHD, 
6% of adolescents have ADHD, and it morphs to 4.4% of adults. Now, that being said, you're looking at full symptom recognition, and you're looking at a definition in DSM-5. That is not 100% of what's going on, and I bring your attention to a recent publication by Steve Ferrone and uh, uh, Joe Biederman, where we know that 16%, 15.9%, I believe it could be 16.9%, roughly one out of six patients has impairing ADHD symptomatology, and that's not in that last slide. So it's much larger group of people than we recognize. If you add 16% and you add 4%, you're about 20%, one out of five. And I would suggest to you that one out of five has impairing ADHD symptoms. That's a huge problem. And it's not addressed in our medical education. It's not addressed usually in our, in our uh, medical practice, although it's becoming more likely to be addressed. Etiology. Well, we do know, as you saw on that last slide, that there is a high correlation between genetics and ADHD. It's similar to bipolar in terms of family connection, family history, which is so important. And you will find that children of ADHD adults or adult parents of ADHD children frequently are going to have ADHD. That's a real important place to screen. Okay? And we know because of that that this is a highly genetically transmitted disease. Now, if we look at that's nature. How about nurture? If we look at the environment, there are several environmental factors, too many right now to go through in a detailed list, but some of the most important. Premature birth. Your child, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Tabitha, right? Your child is premature? Yes, he was. Yes. Her child has ADHD as well, okay? Low birth weight, small gestational age, and prenatal tobacco exposure, and not just tobacco, but alcohol. There's odds ratios. The odds ratios go up the more substance use and abuse goes on. And if you look at the odds ratio for combination of alcohol abuse and tobacco, it's about nine times more likely. So it's an interplay of genetics and environment, okay? Socioeconomic factors do take another a nasty turn, and they can also be precipitating this disorder. And even the environment, lead exposure, Flint, Michigan, oh my gosh, delivers a similar type of phenotype where people really look ADHD-ish. Is it really ADHD? Well, it acts like ADHD, but it's also treatable. So, Screening for lead is not, a, a not an inappropriate thing. It's an appropriate thing to do, especially in children. What about the structural alterations in the brain? Well, we do know that there is, this is a, a, a biological disease and that there are inhibited maturation in the cortex. Delays most prominent, of course, in the prefrontal uh, regions of the brain. So if we look at ADHD patient versus a normal control patient, 
there is approximately a two-year delay in cortical maturation. So that is why some people with ADHD grow through it. They don't ever completely lose it, but they grow through it. And you will see that the, the odds go down of being an adult with ADHD. But most people with ADHD as children will persist into adulthood with impairing symptoms. The inattentive symptoms are the ones that are most likely to continue. Inattentive symptoms in a child, you must have six out of nine, and they're pretty clear when you look at them. Uh, The uh, important thing, if you look, is that those symptoms persist into adulthood. So with kids, it's six out of nine. With adults, it's five out of nine. And the age is different in DSM-5. It's 12 for the, for the baseline or, or less. With children, it's seven. So being aware of that, we have to be very clear that failure to give attention, losing and being distracted a lot, that's one of my favorite questions. Are you easily distracted? Having difficulty uh, listening to others, not following through on instructions, avoiding tasks that require sustained mental effort. That's your procrastination, isn't it? Losing things, leaving things all the time, forgetting things. Procrastination, forgetfulness, very, very impairing, especially if you have a demanding job, especially as life gets more complex as you age and have more children and more responsibility. And that's where we, we start to really see this creep in with people in the spectrum of ADHD who are very bright sometimes but are now being uh, impaired by it. Now, the criteria for hyperactive impulsive, they morph a bit. So you might start with squirming in your chair, getting up and walking over to the window as a child in grade school, looking out the window, looking at the butterfly. And you might be called by your teacher, you know, someone who is a bit, uh, uh, you know, distracted. If it really gets bad and you're talking a lot, you could be oppositional. And so sometimes following the muse leads to oppositional defiance and a lot of low self-esteem and a lot of problems when it comes to keeping up with the crowd because you're losing your attention and you're up out of your chair and you're being punished punishment. And you might know you're bright, okay? But you're being punished. Fidgeting, leaving the seat, running around, having difficulty. Now, these are the childhood criterion that were developed by consensus. But when you move into adulthood, you have a a tendency to internalize. And when you internalize, often you'll find other ways of letting go of the energy. You might get a job that's very physically active. Perhaps you're a bartender. Okay? Perhaps you are someone who is a car salesperson and you're selling one car to one person, turning and doing the exact thing to the next person, running outside to show the car, constantly moving, constantly working. Tabitha is going to tell you a little bit about some of the ways she has internalized the hyperactivity. Okay? So... Very important that we look at that as well. And, of course, impulsivity is, is really a problem and often leads to problems with 
relationships, much higher rates of divorce. Jobs, much higher rates of job turnover. You know, I'm not going to stay. You can't wait. It's not like there's another day to sit down and think about it and have a discussion. You're impulsive. You're going to act on it quickly. Impulsive decisions can be dangerous as well. And that is why there's so much problem with the law and with, with getting arrested and being incarcerated, okay, as we're going to see. Most important, and Dr. Jane will address some of this as well, are the comorbidities. Usually there's two ways that people present when they come in with ADHD. They either come in saying, Doc, my coworker got diagnosed with this, and I see it in myself. Do you think I have it? Or my son was diagnosed, but I know doggone well that I'm just like him. Do I have it? So they're going to come in asking if they have it because a relative, friend, or someone in their family has it. That's one way. The other way, with comorbidity. 50-50. And when they come in with comorbidity, the three primary comorbidities, mood disorders, depression, anxiety states, very, very common. And finally, substance use disorders. So if you're not treating the root cause, you're not going to get the results you really want. And I think Tabitha's journey is going to illustrate that. So if you look at adults with ADHD, four out of ten have a mood disorder. Four out of ten. What happens then? And doctor, I hope you will address this when we look at treating our depressed patient population. We're giving them selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors often, aren't we? What happens when you give someone an SSRI? What happens to the other neurotransmitters? I know we're only talking about three or four of them, right? That's the wonderful statement that Vladimir made the other day when he said, we're playing a symphony with three notes. But you give serotonin, you often downregulate catecholamines. So dopamine downregulation, weight gain, sexual dysfunction, apathetic responses. Does it help ADHD? No. So your depressed patient population who has ADHD are going to be treatment resistant. One place to look. Always reassess. Always reassess. And this is the huge one. Okay? When we go to looking at who has anxiety and anxiety disorders, 48%, 47%. So I think you're going to see that as we interview our patient. But this is something that we need to keep in mind. Half the time you see your ADHD patient, it will be chaotic. They're in chaos they're either losing their job, getting divorced, having a problem where they're going to get fired, or they're having substance abuse problem and really at risk for all kinds of distress. Okay? Impairing? Impairing? Oh, my goodness. Repeat a grade. Failure to graduate. Dropping out of school, by the way, dropping out of school has a much higher mortality at younger age. I had to drop that slide out because we didn't have enough time. But thinking about that, this is not only impairing quality of life. It's risking life, as we're going to see. Risking life. Involved in teen pregnancy, 
impulsive, forgetful, substance abuse, illness, and accident. When you are going along and you're being punished, you're being picked out as not performing appropriately as a child and as a teen, your best friends become others who are having the same problem. And what happens is you're looking to calm the anxiety down. You're looking to use drugs that do that, alcohol, marijuana. You're also looking to try to get your neurons working properly and get the synapses firing and the networks firing in the frontal lobe. So it's very likely you might try cocaine or another methamphetamine, something that's really destructive and dangerous. So that being said, high, high levels in substance abuse population. At-fault car accidents, driven to distraction. If you have backseat pat, remember, this disease may be moderate or severe or mild. So if you look at those who have moderately severe disease, if, if they have backseat passengers, the rates of accidents go sky high. This is another really concerning and problematic uh, uh, events that occur in the cascade or the journey of having ADHD. Okay? Being arrested. My goodness, look at incarceration. Look at incarceration. Our prisons are full of ADHD folks who never really had a chance and may have it now. So you're going to see that it's not too late to treat and you're going to see that it can be transformational for people to be treated truthfully. Fired from a job, twice as many. But what I said about life, this is a large epidemiologic survey from, um, I think it's Denmark, correct? And the Danish survey was published in Lancet. Look at the odds ratios according to age of untimely deaths, increased mortality rates. 1.86 if you're less than six years of age. Between six and 17, 1.58. But look at 18 and older. 425% increase in mortality in adults with ADHD. We need to look at this this has been replicated in other large epidemiologic surveys. It isn't just in the United States. It isn't a fabricated disease. It's a biopsychosocial disease, and it has mortality. So we must keep this disorder in our differential when we evaluate patients. That's one of the distracting things, especially in primary care, where you're seeing all these folks show up. Primary care is the primary mental health care network. But it's also every other network. And you're seeing everything from a sore throat to cirrhosis of the liver to pulmonary fibrosis to ADHD to depression. And it's hard because you have a limited amount of time. And your perspective can be easily pulled away if you don't keep this as a high index of suspicion. We're not doing any favors to our patients. So, the effect of ADHD medications. This is, again, from the same study in Lancet, looking at the prevalence of injuries in children, okay, that six and younger, and the difference 
that treatment makes. And if you look, you'll see the, uh, the top line, which is non-treated children with ADHD have a much higher rate of injury. The middle line, treated children with ADHD, as you progress in years, almost comes, it does come to the same level as children without ADHD. Does treatment help prevent injuries, emergency room visits? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, here is another look at decreased emergency room visits. 10-year-olds, 25% decrease. 11, 37%. 12, 30%. So, you know, we often take breaks in our treatment, and I'm not a pediatrician. I think you are, Doc. Um, you're, you're pediatrics as well. So, you know, if we look, we're seeing here that taking that, that vacation, that, that break from medication in the summer, may have some ill effects also. And you have to weigh benefit-risk ratio for continuing treatment. This is a, uh, another very interesting study by Chang looking at reduction in motor vehicle accidents. Wow, look at the motorcyclists way over on, uh, as you look on the right side of your slide. Half as many motorcycles accidents when you're taking medication. I don't know what it's like for you, but boy, in Connecticut, you know, we're driving along and all, we're in traffic and all of a sudden, meow, motorcycle just whizzes by and I'm going, oh. I hope they don't have ADHD. <laughs> but they probably do. Yeah. And so treatment makes a huge difference. Follow up with women and men. Dramatic changes. A third, at least, less problem with reduction in motor vehicle accidents. So why do we miss it? Well, the stigma is huge, okay? The patient themselves feel stigmatized. And I'm, I'm going to, again talk with our patient about this. Lack of knowledge on patients, physicians being, presenting complaints often involving depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and or problems achieving important life goals. Chaos. This is the most distracting thing. You get seduced by these other problems. And you may treat and treat and forget to reevaluate. But if the anxiety is only a little improved, if the depression is improved some, but cognition is impaired more, if they don't respond, you must reassess and you must consider. By the way, everybody that has ADHD learns compensatory strategies. So the compensatory strategies are sometimes great. And if you are really intelligent, your compensatory strategies are even better. If they're better, you might not get diagnosed. So this is another study looking at your IQ and your ability to get finally diagnosed with ADHD. And you can see the curve. The higher the IQ, the older you are when you finally get diagnosed, the harder it is. Okay? Well, that's another important thing. ADHD, high IQ. I think Tabitha will illustrate that as well. So who should you screen? Family history of children with ADHD, treatment-resistant major depressive disorder, drug abuse, or bipolar disorder. 20% of ADHD patients have bipolar. 20% of bipolar patients have ADHD. And that can be tricky. We'll talk about that. The doctor will talk about that, Dr. Jane. 
poor school performance, not reaching potential, poor occupational performance, not reaching potential, multiple divorces, multiple job changes, by the way, motor vehicle issues, problems with the law, forgetfulness, procrastination, distractibility, forgetfulness. Those are the three common symptoms. Which is the best scale? How do, you, how do you actually diagnose this? And by the way, my office staff is now able to tell me that I need to screen someone for ADHD because they know, oh, this is so-and-so, she misses her appointment, she's always 20 minutes late. She always comes out of the room asking me questions about what you told her. So listen to your office staff, okay? But there is a wonderful self-report scale called the ASRS. You can get this at... Um, I just named the site, uh, Doc. It's CME, ADHDCME.com. ADHDCME.com. All of these scales are available, okay? And they're for free. And you'll get CME education on ADHD. I highly recommend it. So six questions subset of the 18 items. Four inattentive, two hyperactive impulsive. It's a real quick screener. This is what it looks like. If you have four of these in the light gray, in the dark gray zone, it's highly suspicious that, that you have. It's a good, good um, uh, uh, survey. 97% pretty much uh, ruling out if you don't have four. So it's, more, it's what a screener should be. It rules out. doesn't necessarily rule in. You've got to go look further. And looking further means doing a further assessment with inattentive and hyperactive impulsive symptoms. That's the ADHD RS4 with adult prompts. Lenny Adler. Adler. Wonderful to, to, if you suspect to get the screen positive, have them take this home. Give them another one for their significant other to fill out as if they were the patient. Have them back for another conversation. Wonderful. And if they have five of nine and it's impairing, impairing at least in their work, in their education, or socially, then you have a diagnosis. It's not rocket science. You have a diagnosis. So this is what it looks like. Hyperactive, impulsive is the last nine. But there's also an ADHD self-report scale available on ADHD.com. I highly recommend it. When, when Tabitha was first diagnosed... You, very often is four of 18, so it's uh, 72, right, is the, high, the highest. I think you were 64, as I remember, Tabitha. She was 64. If you test her now, she's 11. 11. The goal is 21. That's where you want to be. So you have to reassess measurement-based care. Reassess. Use this, but also talk to your patient about the time that they're better. Perhaps they're much better in the mornings, but they lose it in the afternoon. Maybe they need a longer-acting preparation. So, again, Dr. Jane will address this for us uh, as we look at a focus on treatment. So I'm going to turn this over to my esteemed colleague, and uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you, sir. Good job. So you know how that one works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did Brandon just say that having motorcycles increases your risk of having ADHD? Is that what's wrong with me? Dude, 
I've had motorcycles since I was 16, and only recently, thank God, because of my wife, I got rid of them. Oh, but now the diagnosis is established. Well, good morning. I just love you guys for being here this early in the morning to talk about a topic that I think is often the Rodney Dangerfield of psychiatry, ADHD. Remember Rodney Dangerfield? I don't get no respect. But let's talk about important things first, shall we? Here's my most important question of the day. Do you like my bow tie? Okay, okay, let's start with the... I'm of course joking. There's a reason why I wore this. I saved this for this talk. I don't know if you notice what's on it. It's tiles. Or you might want to look at it as pieces of a puzzle. And the only way this tie works is every puzzle is willing to fit nicely into the next one. Similarly, in a patient's life, if a puzzle is missing, for example, if ADHD is missing from our thought, our diagnosis, it's all going to fall apart. So yeah, we need to give ADHD the major respect it deserves, because like a Shakespearean tragedy, I was 14 when I was forced to read Macbeth. I went to Catholic schools. So when I say forced, I mean forced. And I, for the first time, realized some tragedies tumble upon each other. You make a mistake, and it converts into another mistake, and then another mistake that was unnecessary but only happened because you made two other mistakes, and it tumbles down. I think missing ADHD is a genuine Macbeth style, Macbeth level, Shakespearean tragedy, because there's no disorder in psychiatry more treatable than ADHD. None. No question about it. So when I miss it, it's not a tragedy. It's a double Shakespearean tragedy, and I need to be careful not to do that. So let's do this. Brandon's already talked, thank you, sir, about comorbidities, but I want to impress upon you how badly comorbidities affect our patients. Think of it as a coward. Think of ADHD as a coward, a bully. They like to travel in packs. What I would like to show you is how bad this pack mentality ADHD has. Check this out. This is a, most of the studies I'll show you are extremely recent in the last 12 to 24 months. I want you to appreciate in college age kids who have depression, I'm sorry, who have ADHD, I want you to notice the risk of depression doesn't go by 100% or 200% or 300% or 400% or 500% or 600%. goes up by an odds ratio of 8.4, 840%. That is astonishing. But the problem is we look at ADHD as this carefree, joyous, happy-go-lucky kind of individual, and it couldn't be further from the truth. Because if you knock on ADHD, often it's hollow. Because it's hollowed out the individual, just like a termite infestation does to a house. Look at anxiety, 10 point, these are odds, these are not percentages, 10.8, a thousand percent higher. GAD, generalized anxiety. Oh, but, oh, I've got ADHD, I can't focus on anything, therefore, what, how can I even possibly worry? 
But that's not true because they can't focus very well. Sadly, that empty space is often taken up by worrying and stress. And you might say, these are strange bedfellows. To the contrary, having ADHD invites a lot of people into bed. Anxiety, depression, trauma, learning disorders is an odds ratio that makes my knees buckle. 24 times higher odds. But look at the bottom. This makes it even worse. It's bad enough to have one disorder. But I hope you're noticing a third of patients who have ADHD and a comorbidity have more than one comorbidity. It's astonishing how bad this is. This slide was created at my kitchen table, so you're going to look at it. <laughs> All kidding aside, people with ADHD don't have a 12-hour clock. They have a 24-hour clock, and those 24 hours are, are impacted. And if they're a parent, double trouble. If they're working, triple trouble. If they're a student, quadruple trouble. Just run your eyes around this. These are the great, great challenges, the great tragedies these individuals face because of undiagnosed and untreated ADHD. Substance use conditions are very common. I just want you to recognize the following. Arrow goes both ways. This is a two-way street. ADHD does increase the risk of substance abuse, but substance abuse individuals very often also have ADHD. If you're not convinced, Allow me to convince you beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is a small study, right? 18,000 patient study. No, this is one of the largest studies ever conducted. It's also very high quality. It's a twin study. So you can't say this is a selection bias. We're actually studying twins. And this is what we found. The association between ADHD and substance abuse. Let me just put it, there we go. Look at the red box. Oh my God, even in the best way to study something, which is a twin registry, if you have ADHD, substance abuse is going to be an issue, and perhaps not just one substance abuse, multiple substances. And typically you might have thought, I'm self-treating it, right? Oh, so I have ADHD, it's untreated, I accidentally discover cocaine, or I accidentally discover methamphetamine, and then I'm self-treating. It's true, but there's more to it. Look at the use of alcohol. So it's a sad combination of I'm anxious, I don't sleep well, and I can't focus well. So multi-substance abuse becomes quite a problem for them. Nicotine use is very high in these individuals because there is evidence that nicotine, of course not a healthy substance, does help them somewhat with inattention. And because they're not getting any other help, they will often turn to nicotine. Because nicotinic receptor 7, when activated, at least temporarily improves attention span. Sure, they should not be doing it. But how much do you want to fault them? If the medical community doesn't step up in these individuals, well, what would you do? And how many ADHD individuals in America have not had a contact in their life with a healthcare provider? For ADHD, but they have had contact with the pediatrician. And as we know, ADHD starts early. So actually, this is what I'm gonna say. Let's see if this sits well with you. 100% of ADHD individuals who have not been diagnosed have had multiple contacts with healthcare providers 
It just has not been looked at. I think it's so much easier to blame the patient. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. But I wonder, when we know a disorder has a prevalence of 7.7% in children and a 4% prevalence in adults, that's high prevalence. Do not look for it. Whose fault is it? I think it's a shared fault. So yes, all subtypes of ADHD. Females are not immune from this. I wish they were. At least protect them from that. No. Whites, blacks, browns, it is. Sadly, there's nothing that protects us entirely. This is close to my heart because I have, over the years, learned that psychiatric disorders describe the symptoms of a condition. They don't describe the genuine suffering of a condition. What I'm going to propose to you, despite the fact that 18 symptoms of ADHD make ADHD, this is the reality of ADHD if you live it yourself. It hollows you out. It takes away your self-confidence and your trust in yourself and your sense of well-being and your sense of future really badly, almost to the level of depression. Now, you might see them with multiple tattoos, black outfit, and an attitude to match. But when you part the curtains a little bit, then you recognize how distrustful they are of themselves because they can't help it. Nearly everything they've touched in their lives hasn't gone the way it ought to. So when you and I intervene to stop it, here's a pill that focuses your inattention. Uh, I'm leaving cash on the table. So let's talk about treatment options. We are exceedingly blessed with lots of treatment options, but I want to talk about non-pharmacological first. Not for any other reason other than I do believe it's a necessity. We have to cover this. We have to offer this to our patients. You already saw the odds ratios of depression. You saw the odds ratio of anxiety. You saw that they have a deficit in wellness. So much so, it's not improper to diagnose them with a new DSM condition I just created called wellness deficit disorder. And I'm not saying it for comic effect. Really, am I off track here? If not me, who will address that need with the patient. CBT, I think, is a very valuable way to approach it. And you might say, but CBT is only for depression. Sure. But CBT also comes with B, cognitive behavioral therapy. The evidence is actually pretty good, especially in combination with pharmacological agents. Classic or modified CBT is quite effective. Mindfulness. But you might say the whole problem they have is they have a mind full. How can they be mindful? Well, if you're willing to invest, and they're willing to invest, particularly after you give them treatment, they can and will and do benefit both in their affect, but also in their core ADHD symptoms. No, I'm not suggesting this is the primary treatment. What I'm suggesting, if the goal of treating ADHD is not the control of symptoms, but the restoration of human life, then treating symptoms is just step one. Mindfulness is actually quite useful, very much useful. This cluttered mind, 
that our patients describe. Mindfulness is the antidote to it. And it's slow and steady, but it's a, it's a gift that never stops giving. I will speak for myself. Mindfulness for me, getting trained in it and to practice it, has been one of the greatest joys because I have discovered who I am. I've discovered my own mind, its strengths and weaknesses. And for someone with ADHD to do that, Tabitha, you're shaking your head. Maybe you'll talk about it later. has been one of the great unending joys of my life. And I'm sure it'll be for our patients as well. Pharmacology is important. It's actually so important. Nothing I've said is most likely going to work unless pharmacology is optimized for a patient. So you perhaps have a right to say he's a pill pusher. Then perhaps I have the right to say this. I understand your concern. But with a disorder where my therapies have low effect size and medications have effect size that touch the ceiling of this tall ballroom, do not give it as an option to a patient is abdication of my responsibilities. It actually may be unethical for me not to actually alert them. But there are challenges. So we look at challenges, we look at strengths. So here we have the stimulants. We'll talk about them in some detail. We are quite blessed that more and more non-stimulants are available. I have been, I have done a few things in my life I'm very proud of. And this is one of them. I have had a role to play along with you, Brandon, in developing many of these medications. So if you have detailed questions on them, uh, I mean, and Brandon may be good sources of information. A few things. There are quite a few medications that simply don't work. We gotta talk about what doesn't work so we can focus on what does work. SSRIs do not work for ADHD. In fact, there's emerging evidence, certainogic agents, pure certainogic agents actually can harm ADHD symptoms. Think about it this way. Don't you treat OCD with SSRIs? Good. Why do you do it? You say to help them. Help them with what? To actually diminish their focus on something that they cannot stop focusing on on a routine basis. So if you look at patients who are on SSRIs chronically after six months or so, there's actually deficits in cognition that develop in a third of patients. Actually it does, so be very careful. Because you see a patient who's depressed and anxious and you say, let's just treat the depression and anxiety, then come back in six months and let's see what happens. Uh-uh, makes no sense. In fact, contrary to make sense, it makes great sense to not do it that way. But let's get into it. Now that we know where not to go, let's actually kind of figure out where to go. Atomoxetine is a solid option. But we'll talk about its weaknesses as well. It's, it's a solid option for several reasons. It's a non-stimulant. It has demonstrated repeatedly that it can cover symptoms 24 hours per day. Weaknesses are two. It doesn't have a large effect size, but there's one more weakness. We tend to give it once a day. Why do we give it once a day? Help me, somebody. Why do we give it once a day? The drug has a half-life of five hours. Because that's how it's marketed. But the reality is that drug really is a BID drug. 
And if you give it BID, tolerability improves very dramatically. Japan, for example, it's a very popular drug. Over there, it was always marketed BID. So Japanese clinicians just, I guess what I'm saying is, make sure you wag the tail, not the tail wag you. A good drug, but it can be dramatically improved in its utilization if I, if I think it out a little bit. And by the way, at the bottom, you will see in green, I made sure side effects are reported as well. Oros methylphenidate. This is Concerta. This is another effective and generally well-tolerated treatment option. It clearly is. Methylphenidate as a compound has repeatedly demonstrated efficacy. Here's just one study I'm showing you, but there's a great deal of data. This is an appropriate intervention to use. There is, of course, the D formulation of methylphenidate, Focalin, ER. Guess what? That, too, in good studies, has demonstrated effectiveness. But you really want to ask yourself, effectiveness in what? What am I looking to do? And even though we often undercount the importance of hyperactivity and impulsivity in adults, patients are very bothered by it. And more importantly, they're very impaired by it. If you can't sit through meetings, if you can't let your spouse finish his or her sentence, if you aren't patient with your kids, if you speed, and if... Oh, workplace catches ADHD just like that. Here I'm happy to show you. Look at the breadth of the spectrum. It's both inattentiveness and hyperactivity and impulsivity. The challenges, of course, with stimulants are, like this one in particular, it doesn't cover enough hours. So you're forced to use it twice a day. Well, then you can't sleep. Then you're forced to use a short acting later and a long acting earlier. So there's some challenges, but that's okay. So besides the methylphenidate class, we have the amphetamine class, right? So, of course, we've had the mixols, Adderall, Adderall XR. Useful. Challenges. Adderall by far has, Adderall, has become the number one drug of choice in a city like Austin for diversion. And first I thought, these are just bad kids. This is horrible. Until I found out after my kid graduated from UT and six, seven years later, he told me how much Adderall he used. I'm like, I said, where are you getting it? And this was the problem. He said, oh, we know how to read DSM. So he and his friends, I'm going to admit this to you. This was a shock to us, obviously. It's a good, he's a good kid. But because everybody was doing it, they were taking it to study but they were doing it for some other reason. On Saturday nights, they would take up to 20 milligrams of Adderall. For what reason? So that they could drink more and not be drunk. And this is routine. He says it's easier to find Adderall on University of Texas campus than marijuana. So there has been real drive to find longer acting, less abusable potentially formulations. This is one of them. This one is Listex amphetamine. This is Vyvanse. And the reason why this has been such an interesting compound is even though it is D-amphetamine, D-amphetamine gets married to lysine, which is an amino acid. Oh, it's a marriage made in heaven, man. Nothing breaks it up. Okay, something does break it up, but very slowly. 
it gets broken in the bloodstream by RBCs. And therefore, the arrival of the drug, it leaches out. It is a more prolonged release without a major bump initially. And the advantages of that are considerable. Let me show you the advantage. This is the way to look at a medication. Not just what do you do to my inattention and hyperactivity, but what do you actually do in a workplace setting? It's a beautiful study. And if you look at it, all the way from hour two to hour 14, if you look at LDX, which is of course Vyvanse compared to placebo, it's actually effective for a prolonged period of time. We have made no strides in 70 years in coming up with a better stimulant. It's very interesting. Uh, Methothenidate was released in America in 1951. That's a long time ago. But amphetamines came in America in 1937. That's really long time ago. And guess what? That's not a third stimulant. So the real advances have been in changing their delivery or changing the compound by making it a pro-drug. That's it. But that's okay, because these drugs have such large effect sizes. So here's one way to do it. There's another way that just came out two or three years ago, a triple bead formulation of mixed amphetamine salts, and this one is called My Day Is. My Day Is long. I guess that's what they were going for. That's my guess. What do I know about marketing? But it actually fits its profile. The evidence is quite good. Actually, I did this study. This is one of the oldest slides I'll show you today. This is from 2008, 11 years ago, but we did this study in 2005. And again, I hope you appreciate we are going beyond the realm of symptom control. That is only so much. What I need to know is things like, would you check this out? A functional scale. How e much easier has it become to live with your ADHD? How is your wellness doing? How is your performance in your daily activities? How are your relationships with your family, your children, your coworkers? How bothered, how concerned are you? What's the level of daily interference? And the answer was, we were able to demonstrate that this particular triple bead formulation had a positive impact on all of those elements. If there's one way to look at ADHD through new lens, this is it. This being, look at symptoms, of course. But I could correct all your symptoms and not improve your life. Yeah, I wanna do both. I wanna do both. These poor folks have such deficits and so many different issues. There's a couple of special issues I wanted to bring to your attention. This is a fabulously interesting slide from one of my favorite countries, comes from Ireland. Watch this, this is what they did. They asked a group of people who had ADHD and controls to come into the laboratory setting, but the laboratory was designed like a hotel. And they were all asked to be hotel clerks for a day. Watch this. And then they were asked to perform tasks like checking a guest bill, proofreading, a leaflet, you know, sorting stuff. Stuff you have to do. So watch this, because this will, at least for me, completely change my thinking about ADHD. They did make a lot of mistakes. That is no surprise to you, right? If you have ADHD, you make a lot of mistakes. The real surprise for me was how much they wouldn't attempt anymore. 
So often we ask this question, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm interviewing for ADHD. How many mistakes do you tend to make? What goes wrong? How forgetful are you, right? Those are the questions we ask. I may need to add one more. How much do you not do because you learned the hard way not to try it anymore? So it now becomes an issue of omission and commission. And I did not, I never used to ask that. I think what ends up happening is human life with ADHD starts this way and quickly they learn, avoid, avoid, drop out of school, stop doing this, therefore you have less impairment. It's okay to work the night shift. It's okay to not go to graduate school. It's okay to stay in this marriage that is not good, but who, who are you going to find? And it narrows it down. Have you seen that in patients? Yes, you have. So yeah, this was very instructive to me. It's, it's not that they just do things wrong. They've learned the art of avoiding things because they know. Or they have learned the hard way. Don't go there. With stimulants, it's very important not to see them as all good, all bad. They are challenges. We have to be aware of cardiovascular issues, diversion issues. We have to be aware they can often also induce sadness and apathy and anxiety. Therefore, put your hands on 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock of the steering wheel. I will often tell patients, if we change medications, it's not a sign of failure. It's a sign of our desire to get it just right. A good trial of a stimulant should be four weeks, not five weeks. Either do it my way or hit the highway. Very selfish approach here. There's no reason to be on a stimulant for four months, six months to find out if it's right for you. It's just no need. Four weeks, my way, hit the highway. Often the challenge is the wrong medicine or the wrong dose. And by the way, don't avoid it in situations we used to avoid it. Oh, he's got a history of substance abuse in the past. He was a cocaine snorter. And, and yeah, I, I just cannot give him a stimulant. Yeah, you have to be more careful. Definitely don't use a short acting. Definitely don't do that. Don't give them like a 90 day or whatever. But to avoid giving such patients a long acting stimulant is an abdication of responsibility. It really is. This, but this is different than what I was taught. I was taught, give them dizipramine. Why dizipramine? It doesn't work. Doesn't matter. They can't abuse it. That's. See how I proved my own hypothesis? So, no. Now we're thinking, whatever is effective for them. If a non stimulant is effective for them, we'll do it. If it's not, we will do it. But don't avoid it. But if you do use a stimulant, control the numbers, but control the duration. If you control the duration, it can be very helpful. The other big worry that was there, has been eliminated, is this one that has to do with cardiovascular risk in the average patient who didn't have risk to begin with. Not in any evidence. Let me go back so you can see how big the study was. It's about 800,000 patient years. It's not a small study. And what was found, and this is JAMA. No, we actually don't have any evidence that it causes cardiovascular damage in the long run. We just don't have any evidence. What we do have evidence is if you don't treat ADHD, it's a problem. People with ADHD in America actually live five to six years less than people with ADHD. No, ADHD doesn't kill you. What kills you is the comorbid substance abuse, the comorbid nicotine, the comorbid, the comorbid and the driving. 
death in girls who have ADHD under 18 is 400% higher than a girl who does not have ADHD under 18. Because girls tend to have actually quite low rates because they are, well, they're better than boys in many, many ways in terms of so many things. But if they have ADHD, it is quite dangerous. And when does a girl who's 18 or 17 drive? Well, morning, evening, afternoon, night. I do need coverage around the clock. So let's start wrapping up our conversation. I'm going to invite you guys in just two minutes. Um, the way to diagnose it, of course, know your DSM symptoms. My, my very good friend, Brandon, is completely right. Have a very high index of suspicion. You see a comorbidity, you've got to check out for ADHD. It's that useful. And it takes only five minutes. Make sure you evaluate for educational, occupational, and social dysfunction. That's where the gold is often. If there's persistent impairment, why do you have it? Get family history. Family history is so incredibly helpful. Have you guys noticed red grapes hang with red grapes and white grapes hang with white grapes? Have you noticed that pattern? Or am I the only one who spends too much time in vineyards? <laughs> but that's good information to have, right? If there's an identified family member, is there a more genetic condition known to psychiatry than ADHD? Name it. The silence tells you everything. No. 78%, depending on the study, between 72 and 78% of the risk of ADHD is purely genetic. Why not take advantage of it? When life gives you grapes, make some wine. All right. So definitely use that. I do want to remind you that these are the classic. You'll have to forward it uh, in the back for me. It's not working. Thank you. These are, in my opinion, the five things you want to watch out for because these are potential and common unmet needs in adult patients. Actually, Brandon and I and Dr. Sandrajan, we wrote a paper. These illustrations are from it. If you want this paper, just let us know. We will send it to you. And this is my final slide. Woohoo! But I think it's an important one. If you want a gold medal for treatment for every patient, I think the best approach might be to remember the Olympics. Sure, inattention, you got it. Congratulations, hyperactivity, congratulations, impulsivity, congratulations. Let's not ignore the behavioral and the emotional aspects of it too. With that, thank you very much for your kind attention and I'll invite my colleagues to come up on stage. So Tabitha, uh, please sit down. Tabitha's here voluntarily to share her journey with ADHD. You first got diagnosed about uh, in 2016 or 17, correct? Great. Okay. Yes, it was um, late 2016, so just about three years ago. Yeah. Can you give us a little information about what happened to you when you went to see your doctor? I had been diagnosed with um, depression and anxiety since I was 17, 18 years old, and um, I had been on medications, and I was going through a very rough time. I had been transferred um, 
to a different courthouse. I am a judicial marshal. Um, we um, do the job of a bailiff in Connecticut. So um, I had been transferred about an hour away from my home, um, and my son, who I share custody with his father, had to go live with his father five days a week, and that was very difficult for me. My daughter had just left for college, and things were rough. I was more anxious. Um, my job conditions there weren't good. I wasn't treated very well, and I had a lot of anxiety. Um, so I went to go see my doctor. Um, I was also um, very impulsive. I was binge eating um, at least once a day. Um, so things weren't, weren't good for me. Um, and I went to go see my doctor and reached out for help. I was on an antidepressant, but it wasn't working. I was anxious. Uh, so, so you went in with a lot of anxiety. You were having a lot of work problems. You're a single parent. And, uh, and you had been treated with an antidepressant, but you weren't getting better. No. Okay. So chaotic. To say Life the least. Life was chaotic. <laughs> to say the least, yes. Okay. And then what happened? Um, in two, um, late 2016, 2017, um, I was put on Vyvanse. And um, things started to change for me. I Previously, my head wouldn't ever be clear. I always internalized everything. I was not coordinated. I, what I thought was what I called performance anxiety was actually me just, I was very clumsy. Um, I had no self-esteem. I always thought everybody was looking at me. Um, so... Like I said, I always internalized everything. Oh, are they talking about me? Are they staring at me? Did I do something wrong? Um, and things started to turn around. My head was clear. Um, I started to feel better about myself. Um, I started going to the gym every day, and I, I started to like myself. You started to like yourself. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. I was organized. I was focused. I started to set goals, and um, I started to be able to meditate for the first time in my life, which is huge. Um, you talked about mindfulness. I'm, I'm mindful. Um, I'm human, so I have three jobs now. I have my career. I just got promoted to sergeant. I'm on our honor guard, which um, we have to march and um, do events, so I'm, I'm more coordinated now. Um, so things completely turned around for me and I, it's because my mind is clear now I'm not always internalizing I would never have been able to get up here and speak in front of all these people never I would have probably crumbled um, but it's because I, I'm my mind is, is clear um, so everything comes from that I now as a sergeant I have to um, do audits and fill out reports and proofread our we have a log that we enter in you know for prisoner transport and what my marshals do during the day and I have to audit that and I have to pay attention to detail. I would have never been able to do any of those things, meet deadlines. Um, or be the parent that you are? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I have two children and my son, I believe, has ADHD and hasn't been diagnosed yet. Um, but, I, you know, you look back and you start to analyze things and a lot of symptoms that I had, I, I see that he has. And it, it, you see them in him. It hurts my heart because I know what I went through. It's, like he said, it's not that you just don't care. It's, it's 
debilitating. It, it's it's a horrible, horrible life to live, and I I never knew that I could be who I am today and and enjoy life and be successful and and look forward to what's next, you know. And I'm not some super person. I, I still get bouts of anxiety. Everybody does. I don't think there's one person who's never been anxious about something. But I'm able to take a step back and be mindful about every thought that enters my head. And, and I'm very aware. And, and that's what's key. My mind is not a big jumbled mess where I don't know what's going on. And, and that's what, the, what being diagnosed and being treated did for me. And everything else... I'm able to do for myself. So the doctor who failed to diagnose her because he was seduced by the anxiety and depression and was into treating that was me. So I'm an ADHD expert. So if I can be wrong, if I can be misled, if I can be very easily um, swayed into not thinking about ADHD, then you can as well. So it's important, as my colleague says, keep that index of suspicion high. How do I do that now? I've changed my practice style. And what we gave you was an ADHD rating scale screen. You were positive, as I recall. And when she did the ADHDRS, Adler's ADHDRS, it was clearly positive. And then we entered the treatment phase. And I have watched Tabitha through this journey blossom, just blossom. She's extremely intelligent. Remember, the higher your intelligence, the less likely you are to necessarily get diagnosed. Doctor, do you have any thoughts? Why do you think people missed it before? What was it? Because you've had it for a long time, so you've seen lots of healthcare providers. Did you not bring it to them or educate us? You're the real expert here. I always thought it was anxiety um, and maybe situational depression um, or mild depression. Um, Like I said, I, I went to a law enforcement academy for 21 weeks, and what I thought what I diagnosed myself as having performance anxiety was actually just lack of coordination, being clumsy, having accidents. And I'm so much better. Um, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I think that's just who I am as a person. But I am so much better than I was before um, since being diagnosed and treated. And it's just, it's amazing. I'm, I'm a completely different person than I was. And I'm so grateful because I... My mind is just not running all the time. I I feel good about myself. I was telling Dr. Montano yesterday, I have a saying that I, I'm flawsome because I'm awesome with my flaws. And I would never have been able to say that before because I actually have self-esteem and self-confidence now, whereas before I, I would have never had that. I didn't like myself. I Like I said, I always internalized everything. Nobody liked me. Are you know, they staring at me? You know, I always wanted um, validation. Um, I wanted to, I was a people pleaser, you know, because I I didn't, I didn't feel it within myself. And now I I don't feel that. And it, and it shows because I'm, I'm just more concerned with 
doing better and just making sure that I'm aware every day of, you know, um, remaining positive and being healthy and, and, and my, my family and my kids. So I, I want you to know you don't look like the same person I met in 2016. Oh, right. Well, 15. Or 15. Diagnosed right, in right. She has, <laughs> when I say blossom, I mean, um, she's been promoted, by the way. Um, she is now going for a lieutenant, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So she's got aspirations. You were very intelligent. When you graduated from the academy, were you not, or your associate's degree? Correct. Your average was 3.5? Yes. So in spite of the impairment, and she never really turned, she smokes. We're working on that. <laughs> we're we working are. on that. <laughs> but otherwise, she never turned to the other impaired, impairing uh, uh, drugs and, uh, the, you know, that we see so often, marijuana and, and other drugs. So, and not that marijuana is bad. We're legalizing it in Connecticut. But it does calm people down, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So, but it's interesting that you, you had a journey that was free from that. You used your intellect to get through as far as you have. And now you're taking off like a rocket. And you are feeling good about yourself. Yeah. And her, her son, by the way, uh, premature, right? Yes. How about the rest of your family? How about your mother, your father? Well, I, I don't know that I was also a premature baby. Um, you were premature. Yeah. Um, I think that yeah, my mother has um, ADD tendencies, but um, I don't believe has ever Brothers, been diagnosed. Sisters. My sisters, I believe a couple of them um, do as well. I don't know that any of us as siblings have been diagnosed besides myself, um, formally diagnosed. So I, I, I would encourage people to look into it and, 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 and not be ashamed. There's such a stigma on mental health, which is getting better, but especially ADD, and it's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's not, you know, it's, it, not getting help is probably the worst thing, and acting like a crazed, depressed person, I would be more ashamed than who I am today. Um, I was, like you said, impulsive. I, I, I had road rage. Um, I, I cried. I was depressed. I, 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 I binged, ate every day. And I, so she has another impulse control disorder, by the way, and that surfaced through this process, through this journey. We discovered she was a binge eater. Impulse control problems do hang together, don't they? They're good buddies sometimes. They but, are yeah. cowards who travel together. So some of us might say, not knowing very much, how can someone be so inattentive and still binge eat? Help us understand how what seems paradoxical can occur at the same time. It was incontrollable. It was just, I was just impulsive. It's, I can't really explain. Was it a way to, because I couldn't focus on things, overeating became kind of a way to soothe yourself? I, yeah, I could control, and it was kind of like, um, I felt good while I was doing it, but after it was not 
so good. <laughs> Felt so, bad after. So it's a way to relieve the stress. Yeah. I see. And it was probably the one thing in my life that I, I could control. And your self-esteem, by the way, she has the combined type with inattention and hyperactivity, impulsivity. Interesting, she was talking about what she used to do when she had to sit like she's sitting now in a room of people. Can you talk a little bit about that? While I was in the, uh, the academy, law enforcement academy, we would have to sit in classroom for hours. And... Um, I couldn't sit still, so I would always pull out my lotion, and I would always put lotion on. I would fidget, and a friend of mine who I'm very good friends with still to this day would, we go by last name, my last name is Darcy, so she'd be like, Darcy and her lotion. Because <laughs> I would just constantly be putting on lotion because I couldn't sit still. So we still joke about that, even it was six years ago, but I couldn't sit still, so I would just do something, and it was lotion. So it was always lotion on my hands, lotion on my hands, lotion on my hands. And she'd be, she was like behind me, and she would see me, and she said that she'd always be like, Darcy in a lotion. What is she doing with that lotion all the time? But it was because I couldn't sit still. So that was what I did because I could not sit still. Yeah. So, uh, so there's been a lot of change. Yes. Yeah. And you're, you're, you said before your self-esteem has really changed. Yes. Can you give us an idea of what it was like before treatment? I didn't like myself. Um, I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I picked out every flaw that I had. I, if I made a mistake, I, it would go through my head all day. I would just keep going over it and over it and over it and over it all day. And now, of course, no one likes to make mistakes. I still don't like to make mistakes. But what I do now is I learn from it, and I use it as a stepping stone to be better. I don't let it torment me. And that's what it did. I would, it, I would, it would go over and over and over and over in my head all day, and it would torment me. And I... How about your skills as a parent? Your skills as a parent. How have they changed? Drastically. Um, because of impulsive behaviors, I would be a yeller. Um, I'm not a yeller anymore. I like to say that I respond rather than react. I'm able to take a step back and respond rather than just reacting and yelling. And it's so much better. It's so much healthier for my, my kids. And they see it. Um, my daughter's 21, but um, my son especially, because, you know, it's difficult with him, especially that i almost positive he has ADHD. It's, it's very difficult. Um, and my heart hurts for him because I don't, you know, knowing now what I didn't know, you know, he can't help a lot of the, his behaviors. Sorry if I get a little emotional. It's okay to get emotional. I appreciate yes, it. I get emotional, good. too. You give me permission when you do it, okay? So my heart hurts for him. So um, responding rather than reacting now for him is probably huge. You know, the poor kid yelling at him for things that he probably can't help because he hasn't been diagnosed is not fun. I, I know what that's like. So. so I see that the benefit of the medication goes beyond benefiting just you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's benefiting you as a parent, and it's going to benefit your son. It already has started. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm for being for courageous. You. Yes. Mm -hmm.
Thank you. So, questions? Um, Tabitha, did you see the very last slide I showed, which was the Olympic gold medal kind of thing? So, I showed it as an academic, but do you think I was on the right track that success in ADHD is control the inattention, control the hyperactivity, control the impulsivity? but help change the behavior, but definitely also look at the emotional inner life of the person. Oh, here it is. Do you think those five circles I created, is that the reality of life for someone with ADHD? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, I, it, it has changed my life Okay. being diagnosed. Um, could you give us some words of, oh, thank you. Could you give us some words of advice uh, as a final thought? What can we do better when we see patients who seem to only have anxiety or depression? What, now that you really have great expertise, how should we go about trying to parse it out and to not miss the ADHD? Some parts of wisdom? Um, the questionnaire was huge. Um, if there's something inside, I, I mean, in my field, we always say due to training and experience, I think you guys can do the same thing. Um, if you have something in your gut that even tells you just ask the questions, ask the questions. Um, if then, if they don't meet the criteria, well, at least you asked. It's better than to not ask. Because and of, because of uh, Tabitha, every new patient I see is given an ADHD RS six question screener along with a PHQ-9, along with a, uh, a MDQ, along with uh, um, the uh, GAD-7. That is true. That is true. What about side effects? Have you had significant issues with side effects, and how have you and Dr. Montano managed that? I did initially have some side effects um, when I gradually went up, and we just came down um, a dose, and I have... So those adjustments are okay. Well, Brandon, we have a lot of questions. Will you stay with us so that we can, as a team, address that? Is that okay with everybody? That's a textbook. Uh, and that's awesome. That means we are connected. We are thinking this out. May I pose some questions? I'll hand you a bunch, and then we can do that. So let's wait on ARS, Brandon, just for a few minutes while we get that going. All right, do you want to start with your first question, sir? Okay, so is it okay to use um, B2 with stimulant? B oh, benzodiazepines. benzodiazepines. I'm sorry, benzos? Is it okay to use a benzodiazepine with a stimulant, comorbid anxiety? Uh, obviously, it's a judgment call. You must make sure that the patient is compliant, adherent, and not abusing alcohol and... Uh, you know, judiciously I do from time to time, yes, uh, because it is very, very good for leaving, immediately leaving the anxiety and getting results. Sure. So. I'll add, if I may, a couple of thoughts to it. How about you consider this in, in a specific patient using atomoxetine? 
So even though it's an ADHD medication as a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, we've demonstrated it quite well that atomoxetine in patients who have ADHD and social anxiety disorder, for example, is unusually effective. I'll give you another option. If you want to try and avoid benzodiazepines or minimize it, how about using the following? A stimulant with clonidine, a stimulant with guanfacine. I am taken aback by how effective that is. Uh, benzodiazepines have one more challenge. Addiction is one of them. But the other challenge is benzodiazepines routinely harm attention. So temporarily, I agree with you, but if there's a way to diminish it, it's in the patient's best interest to do so. So can, can you address uh, the diagnosis and treatment of an adult patient greater than 65 years of age? It happens. It happens. You know, normally as we go along, people's, uh, the re, the, as we age, there is less demand, so our lives become easier from the stressful points of view. But there are some who continue to lead a very active and a very demanding, intellectually demanding sometimes, life. There's no reason not to diagnose and every reason to treat, but diminished physiologic reserve in, a, in an older patient is there. So you have to go a little tenderly, a little lighter, uh, and you need to reassess and make sure that they, they don't have any serious cardiovascular problems. That's the key. Cardiovascular system, they cannot have significant uh, um, cardiovascular disease. Yeah. My oldest patient with ADHD some years ago was actually, how interesting, 65. The reason why he came to see me is because I was taking care of his seven-year-old grandson. Okay, fine, so I'm taking care of a grandson. But grandma, after watching the seven-year-old son get better, told her husband, you either go see the doctor or I'm leaving you. I thought that was a little over the top. But it wasn't over the top. She said for 40-some years she has had to deal with his impulsivity, his anger rages, his depression. And, and she said, I thought that was part of Johnny. But after having seen the grandson improve, she said, it will be a tragedy for you to die an old man and have to live with it. So we did treat him with the stimulant, with the caveats you reported. And they would both come see me for their appointments together. It was, I, I took care of him till he turned 72. Then he moved on someplace else. Please, let's not practice the art of ageism. Yes. Every human being yes. deserves to be treated. Respect it and, yeah. treat, and diagnose and treat appropriately. Yeah, especially now that I'm getting older, don't you dare practice ageism. <laughs> yeah. So I have one here, and, and I think this is key. How do you balance the efficacy of stimulant meds with the anxiety side effects for people with comorbid ADHD? This is very interesting. I'm glad Tabitha is here. How is your anxiety today? You're only on stimulant, correct? Correct. How's the anxiety? So I don't take any antidepressants anymore. Um, Nor benzodiazepines. No, no. So um, I don't, like I said, I'm human. I do get anxiety, but I don't have it on a daily basis. Um, we did some dose adjustments. Um, so I'm personally okay, but I do 
practice daily meditation. I do practice um, mindful breathing, and I yes, and I exercise every day. Oh yes, I did. I loved your slide. Um, so every person is different. I'm, I I I practice um, mindfulness and 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 breathing, and um, I'm always aware of my thoughts. Um, so. Do you have less anxiety? Oh, my goodness, yes. I... ADHD is a very anxiogenic illness. So what's a stimulant? And interesting, her hype... You didn't bring your lotion today, did you? No. I mean, I have lotion, but I'm not putting it on all day. <laughs> I, I don't like ashy So, so counterintuitively, <laughs> counterintuitively... Her, her hyperactivity and impulsivity have gone way down. Her anxiety level has gone way down on a quote-unquote stimulant. So it's not, and it's interesting. You have an interesting question over there. Should we call it something other than a stimulant? I think they're far more broad spectrum than we recognize, right? When we train stimulant ADHD, we kind of, oh, you know, we all like to believe that we are very broad-minded, but sometimes... When you say benzo, you think one thing, you say stimulant, one thing, but you are living proof. If you do things right, you can get umbrella effects, a shadow syndrome effect that can be helpful. But, but again, if, if you didn't get all the help to add a SSRI, SNRI to that treatment mix would be perfectly legitimate way to do it. And um, an antidepressant with the... Um, and she was able to stimulant. stop the antidepressant when she that, was And that was a choice of, of mine. I chose to stop the antidepressant and do mindfulness and meditation. So that was my choice. I, I have a quick question from our... Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, maybe just one or two more questions and then we can go to ARS. We have a colleague here who wants to know, when you were having binge eating episodes, did you specifically go after sugary foods in order to feel better? Or was it just food, food? Um, it was just food, um, but sometimes it was sugary foods, but sometimes I was telling Dr. Montana when I um, got out of the academy, I started at the courthouse, and there was a food truck, and I would eat two chili dogs every single day at lunch with french fries, but then I would have, like, a candy bar in the afternoon, and that was every single day, well, five days a week. I see. She shared with me earlier today that since she's recovered with the ADHD with your help, she's lost 60 pounds. Um, and obviously changed her life around. Thank you very Thank much you for so being much. with us. Thank, and you. Thank you again, Tabitha, for being here.